0: All right, well, good morning. It is great to see you guys today. Thank you so much again for tuning in. And uh, and I mean, no pastoral guilt when I say this, but I really hope that you guys saw the video that we started the service with. If you missed that, you know, when we're done, if you'd go back and watch it or maybe just find it on Instagram, I think it's there for you too. But it's helpful to us in doing something that I think is critically important for us as Christian people to do, and that is to reclaim the word revival. And here's why it needs to be reclaimed, because all of us think we know what it means. Like we have all these preconceptions, we have prior experiences, we have all these categories and definitions that we bring to it that may be right, but usually, frankly, are not right. And again, it's it's usually born out of something that maybe we experienced in church a long, long time ago. And so I'll give you an example out of my own life. Back before 1997, when Beth and I came to this church, we were members of a really amazing church up in Palm Beach County, great, great place. The Spirit of the Lord was there, like I felt called into ministry there. God worked wonderfully in our lives, but every year, one of the things that we as a church did is we had, I'm going to put it in quotes, okay, a revival. So, here's what that meant. It meant that this family called the Keffers, who were amazing people, incidentally. Like, we kind of got to know the Kefirs a little bit because, you know, my mother-in-law lived with us and she had a car and I had a car and Beth had a car. And, you know, Doris, my mother-in-law didn't drive, so it's kind of like we had an extra car. So, every year when the Keffers came to town we would give them one of our cars and so we hung out with the keffers great people the father was a great preacher mama keffer not kidding about that was actually a great vocalist their kids were musical like it was like a, a traveling you know group is what they were and what these guys would do is they would travel all over the country to churches that they had relationships with and they would hold a revival So, knowing the kefirs are coming, what did we as a church do? We put a big banner out on the street and it said revival with the kefirs. Which, you know, I mean, if you were a part of that church and you knew the kefirs like we knew the kefirs, was kind of cool. I mean, I enjoyed it when they came to town. But like zero people in Palm Beach County knew who the Kefirs were. It was not attractive at all. And it would start on a Wednesday night. So then it would be Wednesday night and then Thursday night and then Friday night and then Saturday morning and then Saturday night and then Sunday morning and then Sunday night and we would wrap it up. And it was a great church time. But it did not accomplish the stated goal. And the stated goal was for all of us who were part of the church to go out into our offices and our neighborhoods and our family and whatnot and find people who are outside of the church and then invite them to the revival with the hope that they would come for five days in a row and somewhere in there come to know Jesus as their Savior, which is a wonderfully intended event. Wonderfully intended. But it is not a revival, guys. A revival is not something you put on a calendar, you know, like you can coordinate it with the Holy Spirit's appointment secretary. Hey, you know, we're going to do a revival, uh, we're thinking like second week of October, you know, does that work for the Holy Spirit, you know? It doesn't work that way. A revival is not an evangelistic event. I mean, you do see people come to faith in Jesus, but that's an ancillary effect, like that's, that's the result of the revival. It's not the revival itself. A revival is not something that visits people outside of the church, A revival is God visiting people inside of the church. I'm going to give you my working definition for revival. There are many, but the definition that I'm going with is this. A revival is a special season of divine visitation in which God the Holy Spirit awakens His slumbering church. It's like he opens the heavens, guys, and he bows down from heaven to the embers of a a dying flame. And then by the power of his spirit, he breathes into the almost extinguished coals until it blazes back to life again. Look, a revival is a special season of visitation in which God the Holy Spirit awakens His slumbering church. That's what a revival is. But here's why it's so doggone important that we study it. The reason to study it is to develop a hunger within you for it. It's to develop a hunger within you to be awakened. Because, I mean, if you think about it, other than that, it's just a history lesson. You know, or if you're a total weirdo like me and you've already studied the history of revivals, all right, well, then it's a walk down memory lane, although I do want to say it's a very valuable history lesson or it's a very valuable series of things to remember. And the reason for that is because, again, using myself as an example, I'm a 21st century Christian, so are you. And here's the deal. At least for me, it is super exciting and inspiring spiritually to know that God has visited supernaturally and awakened His slumbering people... In the 20th century and in the 19th century and in the 18th century and in the 17th century and in the 16th century and in the 15th century, that's just six centuries in a row leading up to our century. The reality is there's hardly a century in the history of the Christian church in which God has not divinely visited his people and awakened his slumbering church. Think about that. Good grief, we are 20% through our century and this is the weirdest year ever. I mean, I'm just looking at this going, I don't know. Why not us? Why not now? I was looking through some news articles the other day. I was sitting at the kitchen table on my computer and, and Beth was walking by, and I'm like, I just read the headlines. I'm just going to be honest. I'm too impatient to spend five minutes on an article. I'll read one article a day. I've shared that. That's it. So I feel like if I read the headline, I kind of got it. You know, I, I get the point, and I, I certainly got the point of this headline. So she's walking by, and I read this headline, and it says, Experts predict active hurricane season in 2020. And I said, wait, stop. You've got to read this. And I just turned the computer like this, and I'm like, check this out. Experts predict... Active hurricane season in 2020. And I looked at her and she looked at me and we just kind of bumped fists, you know, and then we both laughed and then she just kind of kept going. And here's the deal. I mean, it's like it's 2020. It's, Lord, you're going to do what you're going to do. I mean, I don't know what you're going to do, but bring it. Just please also bring this. Please also bring this. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He was a 19th century pastor. He's called the Prince of Preachers. He's a really brilliant theologian, incredible communicator, probably one of the top five communicators in the history of the Christian church, which is saying something. He said, when people hear about what God used to do, one of the things they say is, ah, oh, that was a long time ago. That's it, isn't it? Here's his response. He says, I thought it was God that did it. Has God changed? Is he not the immutable God? Does that not, he says, furnish an argument to prove that what God has done at one time, he can do at another? Nay, he says, I think I may push it a little further and say that what he has done once is a prophecy of what he intends to do again. To which he adds, let us take the blame of it, meaning let us take the blame of the lack of revival in our day upon ourselves and with earnestness seek that God would restore to us the faith of the men of old so that we may richly enjoy his grace as in the days of old. It's interesting. He said that on July 17, 1859... That was the very year that revival came to his city of London. It's remarkable. So now what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that because we've taken up this topic, does that mean that because I just read you this quote and he said something about prophecy, does that mean that, you know, because now we're going to learn all about this and we're going to remember all of these occurrences that God is now somehow obligated in our day, you know, why not us, why not now, to bring it now? No, it's it doesn't mean that at all. That's another thing about revival. It is a sovereign work of the sovereign Lord. It's like unto salvation in that respect. God decides if it comes. He decides when it comes. He decides where it comes, to whom it comes, how it comes, for how long it comes. But man, I'll tell you what, looking at all of the revivals makes me believe it can come. And what I want it to do is to create a hunger in me and a hunger in you that says, you know what, Lord, I want this to come. Like, like bad enough to lay hold of you and not let you go. Not let you go until it comes. So I want to begin this study by looking at a prayer for revival. Revival. And it's a prayer that Isaiah the prophet prays in Isaiah 64. It's a prayer, incidentally, that Christians throughout all of the long history and centuries of the Christian church have laid a hold of and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed as they grabbed on to God and said, look, you know, I'm just going to keep knocking on the door until you answer, like I'm going to hang on until you give me what I'm looking for. It is A, it's one of the revival prayers of Scripture. Isaiah the prophet in the fashion of the Old Testament saints would pray like this. He would have his eyes open. He would have his face turned up. He would have his hands upward like like he's looking to catch from heaven the answer to his prayer. And here's how he didn't say this. He didn't go, ah, you know, that you would run the heavens and come down. And and then we pray for Aunt Sally's foot. And Jimmy lost his dog. and Somewhere deep within this man, just the... The agitation, the the fever, the power, the angst, the, the longing, the passion just welled up and out. And he looked unto God and he said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Why? What's he so worked up about? You know what he's worked up about? The spiritual state of the people of God. As the prophet, he looks forward and he sees in time and it's not too far in the future. The time with his people, the church of his day. The people of Israel would, far from being a witness to the nation, far from being a blessing to the nation, would be held captive by the nations. Far from being a culture transforming influence on the peoples of the earth, they would be themselves being culturally transformed by the peoples of this earth. He looked forward in time and he saw that the church would be so far asleep that you could stick her with a needle and she wouldn't even know. Coma. The embers in her heart all but out. And he said, you know, there's no preaching for this. There, there's no teaching for this. There's no, I can't find a resource on the internet for this. Like, none of our resources can fix this. Like, not all of our money can fix it. There's not a program in the world for this. Like, there isn't anything we can do for this. Oh, that you would run the heavens and come down, because if you don't, then this is it. I sure hope that sounds like something you can relate to at least on some level. You know, as I look at the church of today, I think if you compared it to kind of coals in a charcoal grill, and look, every guy can relate to that. So let's do it, okay? I would say that we're kind of like the coals in the charcoal grill. Three hours after dinner has been finished and the dishes are cleaned. And you realize, oh, I left the, the lid off the grill. And you go outside and you go, man, is it still warm? Is it still, you know, keep the dog away from it. I don't want her to burn her nose. Like, you know, can I touch this thing? Is it, you know, and there's a little bit of heat and maybe a tiny bit of glow if you look. I mean, look, sometimes there's a little flame here, and there's a little flame there, and there's a little flame here. And here's what I'm seeing as a pastor I'm seeing that the wind is starting to blow. I see it in the church unity, I see it in the music that's being written, including one of the songs that we sang tonight Revive Us by local worship leaders, village hymns. It's remarkable but we are a long way from a conflagration. We are a long way from that moment that every grill master enjoys the most, which is when you put all of your charcoal in there and then you get the lighter fluid. I mean, let's just be honest, if you're a man and then you just douse the heck out of it way more than you actually need because it's just fun and then you kind of stand back a little bit and you light your match and you throw it in and it just goes whoosh. And then what do you do when it starts to die down? You squirt it with more of the stuff, right? I mean, you just and you try to keep the thing from coming back up because that's when you go to the hospital. But that's what I'm talking about. I think we're a ways from that. And Isaiah says, all right, well then, let me teach you how to pray because your preaching isn't going to do it. Your teaching isn't going to do it. All these materials that you have, they're wonderful. We have more materials that are more wonderful than at any part or any time in history. Like, wow, can we learn? It's not enough. He's like, stick it with a needle, it doesn't move. Like, there's one hope, and that is God. He says, You pray like this. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens. And that you would come down because what happens when that happens? That the mountains, what are those? It's the most immovable objects on earth. Nobody backs up their pickup truck, ties a rope around one of those and drags it away. It weathers all kinds of storms. Like it is immovable. It is the same again and again and again in century after century, thousands of years. Like, but what does it represent? What does it represent in me? It represents those things that I won't allow to be moved that I make everyone and everything, including myself, bow down to, that I fashion my life and anyone else's lives around me, that orbit around me, that I have to fashion around me, here's this immovable thing. And some of us have like a mountain range, really, but probably we all do. You know, there's this mountain and there's this mountain and there's this mountain. And everyone and everything, including God, are going to have to kind of just deal with the fact that these things are in my life. He's like, well, then God has not come down yet. Because when He does... The mountains quake. The mountains quake at your presence. And he changes image and he says fire. He says as when fire, which is all through the Bible associated with God's presence, kindles brushwood. What is that? It's worthless stuff. But what does it represent? It represents my sin and rebellion and failures and wounds and hurts and dysfunctions and foolishness and lack of wisdom. It represents my and your contentment with the reality that We're asleep, spiritually speaking. And we're not even sure if we want to be awakened. Gets burned up. As when fire kindles brushwood. And the fire, he says, causes the water, I think, of our hearts, if you will, to boil is the idea with a love for God and a passion for God and a joy in God and a faith in God. that we can't keep to ourselves. So he gives us the end result, which is, incidentally, evangelism. It's the outworking out here of what God is doing in here. He says, to make your name known to your adversaries. Why? (laughs) So that your adversaries might be destroyed. No, no, no. So that your adversaries might, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, be made into your family, into your friends to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble in your presence. First in fear as they reckon with the reality that there is a holy, awesome, mighty, powerful God to whom we are all of us as his creatures accountable and then to tremble in joy as the Christ of the cross comes and forgives our sin, relieves and pays our debt, takes away everything in our lives that we would otherwise rightly be afraid to present in the presence of this God. We see an example of this on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when God visits His disciples in the upper room and He visits them literally with wind and little tongues of fire, like a visible manifestation of fire, and He drives them out into the streets of the city of Jerusalem that in that moment, because of a feast, is filled with pilgrims from all over the world, speaking all kinds of different languages. And he supernaturally enables his people in that day to speak all of their different languages. Peter gets up to preach, guys, and 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus day one. Okay, that's a special visitation. But we see instances of this in church history as well. I'll give you an example. On June 29, 1905, the Holy Spirit erupted upon a young group of women in India, most of them widows, most of them from a famine. They had all come together under the roof of one woman's ministry. She had brought them the gospel. They had come to faith in Jesus. They had been visited by the Spirit. They had been sent out as people to go preach the gospel in all of these different towns and villages in India. And this group of 30 women went to this particular town on this particular day, and they were gathered together with all of these other women, and they were just weeping and repenting in the presence of the Lord. And they prayed that God would rend the heavens and come down. And in a book called Revival Fire, it says, and I quote, one of the 30 volunteers that was leading the meeting was so set aflame spiritually that the other girls saw a vision of fire engulfing and surrounding her. One of the other girls ran across the room to grab a pail of water to throw on her only to discover that the fire, though visible, was not literal. And here's what you want to say. You want to go, "Ah, man, it was 1905. Like, it was a long time ago. Yeah, but I, I thought it was God who did it. Has God changed? Is he not the immutable God? 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, 21st century. It's an interesting thought. And look, I'll be honest, I don't really care if I see a vision of somebody, you know, engulfed in some kind of fire. Now, I'm going to also be honest, like, I mean, if I've given the option, I'd, I'd kind of like to see it. I think it'd be terrifying, and I might run for water. But I'm less concerned by orders of magnitude about seeing a vision of somebody on fire than about personally being set on fire by Jesus. I, I Like, I want to... Be on fire! I want you to be on fire. I want us to be on fire. I want God's people in this city and in this county and in this region of the world to be on fire and then beyond. That's the care and that's the concern. Guys, revival is a special season of divine visitation in which God the Holy Spirit awakens His slumbering church and when that happens, whether you glow with fire or not, God goes for you from being just a concept to your ultimate reality. And there's an enormous difference. It's the difference between asleep and awake. See, when God is just a concept to you, then you'll accept God into your life, but you'll do it on your terms. So it's kind of like, well, I'll take you into my life, I think. It all kind of depends. Like, I mean, you know, if you're going to sort of leave my life uninterrupted, then I'm good. Like, I mean, if you're good with my plans and my purposes and my agenda and my mission and my this, that, and the other thing for my life, because I've got it pretty well dialed in, like, if you want to come in and help make it better, come on in, you know? Like, he's your personal attendant or something. Hey, Lord, glad you showed up for work today. You know, like... When he visits you, you're ruined. It's the uniform witness of Scripture. It's the witness of this man. In Isaiah chapter 6, he sees a vision of the Lord. What does he say? As a prophet, he proclaims a prophetic curse upon himself. He says, woe is me. I am ruined. I am, as the old King James says, I'm undone. I am, as Martin Luther translated, I am dissolved. It's like those Alka-Seltzer tablets, you know? You remember those? You kind of put them in water. Maybe you still do. And then you just watch them dissolve. They fizz and until there's just, there's nothing left. When you are visited by the living God, it's like that. You're not negotiating going, I don't know, you know, maybe, but don't know. what are you going to do about this? Because I have this mountain and then I... No, it's woe is me, I am undone. But here's the beautiful thing. He doesn't leave you there. He comes to heal you. He comes to forgive you. He comes to fill you with himself. He comes to make you whole. Isaiah continues his prayer in verse 6 by recalling the ways that God has worked in the past. Well, why is he doing that? Because it's the same reason we're going to study some of the ways that God has worked in the past. It's so that we can lay hold of them and then bring them to him and go, well, wait a minute now, you did that for these people. What about us? What about now? Look at what he says. He says, when you did awesome things, God, do you remember that? Like back then that we did not even look for. Like you came down and the mountains quaked, which is what I asked you a little earlier, to come down and do again. And they quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. Well, what kind of a God? One who acts for those who wait for him and not passively. You know, as you wait for the Lord to bring revival, you know, you don't just find your place on the couch and you get some popcorn and, you know, you cuddle up with your dog and you get your remote control out and you dial in the Netflix and it's like, oh, I'm just waiting on God. You know, I don't know. Maybe he's going to show up. Maybe he isn't. No, 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 no. It's not the way that it works. It is a vigilant waiting. It is an active waiting. It is a, I've got my hands open, I have my eyes open, I have my face toward heaven, and I am looking as I cry out again and again and again and again and again and again for you to move. It is an active seeking of this in earnest prayer and in joyful obedience. Listen to what he says in verse 5, because it's what we want, I think. He says, you meet him, that's what I want. Okay, well, you meet him who what? Dutifully, who out of a sense of guilt, who because he knows that's what he ought to do. Well, I don't know, but he expects it, therefore. No, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. God, you meet with those, he's saying, who remember you and your ways. What is Isaiah saying? He's saying, look, if you're waiting on the Lord, but you're not earnestly seeking Him. If you're waiting on the Lord, but you're not waiting like this. If you're waiting on the Lord, but you're not seeking to live with Him with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength, imperfectly, but there's grace for that, out of a love for Him, out of a passion to see Him move. If you're waiting like that, then you may be waiting for an Uber. You may be waiting for a pizza. You may be waiting for a check to clear. You may be waiting for quarantine to end. But you are not waiting to meet with God. No, he meets with those who wait like this, who are seeking him with all of their heart and soul and strength, who are humbling themselves before him, who are looking for him and longing for him to come, who are giving him no rest until he does, who beat down his torn until he answers, and who seek with everything in him to live for him imperfectly but you grow in righteousness you die to sin you learn to walk in the spirit Christ's likeness becomes your pursuit i read a quote this week by a man named colin yurkahart which is a mouthful i'm not going to lie he's written a bunch of books and some on revival and i got to the end of the quote and i thought oh man that's it like he just yeah, it's the mic drop moment like just done we're done at that point and so really i do kind of want to just finish with this and a few questions listen to what he says he says if we were to ask why the church is not in a permanent state of revival we would have to confess that the principal reason is that such times are costly and the cost is not only in prayer though it is in prayer it's not mild prayers it's not trivial prayers it's Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down prayers. But he says the cost is not only in prayer. And then he reminds us of what God himself says. He says it is the fervent prayer of the righteous that availeth much before God. And so then during revival, there is a real concern among Christians for righteousness and holiness. To be more Christ-like, only if Christians are living in righteousness will they have an effective witness into a nation in which there is so much unrighteousness. Only if they are living in love, joy, and peace themselves can they bring hope into what is largely a hopeless society. It is only when they put the claims of the gospel above all other considerations, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that they find God, what? Meeting with them in their needs and ready to bless others through them. This is not to say that men can contrive revivals, nor can they ever deserve them. They can only seek God for such times of blessing while being prepared to let the work begin in their own hearts and lives. Revival isn't something that happens to people out there. They're affected, but that's secondary. Revival starts right here. So with that in mind, I want to ask you, how are the embers of your heart right now? What state are they in? Like, you know, you, you got the grill, you know? <laughs> like, like, where are they? You lighten it up with the lighter fluid and it's going, whoosh, you know, is that it? Is it five minutes after dinner? Is it 25 minutes after dinner? Is it two weeks after dinner? I think we've all been in each one of these states. I think it's time to ask the Lord to revive us, all of us. And so then the last question is, are you willing to wait for God to visit you? to visit us, and to wait, not passively, but actively. Not on the couch, but on your feet, eyes open, face to heaven. Lord, rend the heavens, move the mountains, bring the fire. God, change us. Active prayer, joyful obedience. God meets with those kind of people. And what I want is to be those kind of people. Let's pray. Father, we bring to you our hearts this morning, and we confess that no matter where they are, they don't burn brightly enough. Oh, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that no matter what our flaws are, no matter what our failures are, no matter what our faults are, no matter what our mountains are, no matter what our brushwood is, no matter what any of those things happen to be, you so loved us that you, God, came at the expense of your life to wash all of that away. Let our, not, our hearts not be dull and insensitive and asleep to the beauty and to the power and to the love and to the passion and to the joy and to the relief and to the favor and to the blessing and to the power of all of that. God, awaken us. Create within us a hunger to be awakened by you, to be visited specially by you to know the presence of your spirit. God, come to us as individuals, as family, as a church, as the church. Rend the heavens, erupt from heaven, come down from heaven and by your spirit, blow into the dying embers in the heart of the church that you love and gave the life of Christ for until it bursts into flame again. Do this, we pray. Not for us, not for our neighbors, not for any person, but other than you. Do this for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.